Father, I'm thankful that your presence always finds us. You're a God who pursues us. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's what the scriptures say. And so uh, we just present ourselves this morning to be found by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> We're just kind of going to preach through it, you know what I mean? Let me just get this cough drop working. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Hallelujah. Over the last year, I have had some incredible encounters in the presence of God, with God. Think about when I was in L.A. with other disciple-making leaders from across the country. Think about our first love worship night this winter. Think about my experiences of inner healing this spring at the Holy Spirit retreat this summer when I just felt a need to overwork and overcompensate just fall away. Think about my sabbatical when we visited uh, Dwelling Place Anaheim. Powerful encounter in worship. I think about sitting by the waterfall at Chagrin Falls and eating ice cream with Jesus. You can do that, by the way. You don't just have to eat ice cream when you're sad. You can... And these moments in the presence of God, they required neither discipline nor focus. Reaching out to the presence of God was as easy as reaching for my phone. But then over the last year, I have had some moments of despair and fear that have left me wondering where God's presence has gone. Think about this winter when we rushed Jack to urgent care with a high fever and he had a seizure in the waiting room. I think about when shortly after we found out that we were pregnant with Keith, Steph started experiencing bleeding in the early parts of her pregnancy that kind of went on for a period of weeks. I think about the doctor's visit that we went to where it took, it just took the doctor like 20 seconds too long to find his heartbeat. You know what I mean? He's grounded for that for like at least two weeks. Like, we just already have a list, you know? So, so. In these moments of fear and despair, they made any thoughts of the nearness of God seem foolish. It made me wonder sometimes, did I, did I just like manufacture those experiences of closeness with God, like in my head somehow, right? Why is it that in one moment we can feel so close to God and another and another feel like he is just so distant. 
Now, St. Ignatius of Loyola taught that God's nearness and God's distance are natural parts of the spiritual life, that you can't go outside and stare at the sun without getting hurt. You can't get too close to a flame without getting burned. We are human. We can't get too close to the presence of God without having to back away in some sense. There will be moments that he calls, moments and seasons sometimes, what he calls consolation, the nearness of God, and desolation, which I think would have been a great title for the newest Taylor Swift album. Some of these moments of desolation, of God's absence, they stretch beyond moments and days into weeks and months and sometimes even years. St. Ignatius called these seasons the dark nights of the soul. Another great title for Taylor Swift's newest album. In other words, following Jesus will mean times of closeness to God and times of distance from him. And to be fair, Jesus himself had close encounters with God when he was ministered to by angels in the wilderness, on the mountain where he was transfigured and sat in the presence of Elijah and Moses. But then he has distant ones too. Does he not, in the Garden of Eden, feel the absence of God so acutely that he sweats blood? Does he not, from the cross, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we were being technical and precise, which we should be from time to time, the presence of God, his nearness, his nearness isn't a changing or unpredictable phenomenon. In fact, his presence and nearness are guaranteed. In this little equation, his, is the, his presence is the constant. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. What is changing and fickle is our attentiveness and awareness of the presence of God. So we sing, let us become more aware of the presence of God. Even though we have this habit, don't we, to say, oh, wow, God was really present in that room. He was there. He was there in equal measure every time. It's just that our attention and awareness rises and falls because we're so busy and we're we're so distracted. So we miss him. We can't slow down long enough to find him in moments of relative calm, which makes finding our way toward him in moments of fear or despair or temptation even more difficult. So the question that many who claim the name of Jesus, who fall in his way, ask, the question is this, where is God in the midst of it all? Like We're over here raising toddlers and teenagers, we're navigating medical diagnoses, known and unknown, we're here trying to make it through the most significant period of inflation in generations, we're out here trying to survive just another election season, and it's just the midterms, like, help us, Jesus. Like, where is God in the midst of it? The answer to that question is found, to our surprise, in an ancient celebration that has been practiced by the Jewish people for centuries. In fact, Jewish people celebrated it just a couple weeks ago, from October 9th to October 16th, was Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. This week-long celebration laid out in Leviticus 23 might just clue us in how we, into how we can cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. But first, first, I just want to speak to the skeptic in the room. Because this key question, where is God in the midst of it all, is a question 
that is deeply personal to non-Christians. By the way, it's deeply personal to Christians. In fact, it's kind of a, an even split between who is it more pertinent to. My skeptical friends, my atheistic friends, seem to feel like Christians don't care about the question, where is God in the midst of pain and evil and suffering? Au contraire. I think Christians wrestle with that more poignantly, don't we? Right? Because we're trying to trust Jesus in the midst of the suffering. You aren't trying to trust Jesus in the midst of the suffering. Like, I, how do you do that? And this is a good critique. That's why it's a good critique of the Christian faith, because we're out here trying to figure it out too. And, and honestly, my, my goal this morning isn't to answer the question of theodicy. It isn't to, my goal this morning isn't necessarily to answer the question of God and evil. Because really, any answer to that question sounds like trite and suspicious, as if the answer to life, the universe, and everything were the number 42. Um, that's a little Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. But most of those questions uh, and those answers can tend to feel trite. But what I want to do, and I think what the scriptures tend to do, is to situate our questions about God in the presence of evil and suffering. They don't tend to situate those questions like in a Q&A format. Like there's not a verse in the Bible that really tightly sums it up, if you're being honest. But what the Bible does do is place that question in a narrative, in a larger story. And, and I think part of that story is the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. So let's look at Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. A strange book of the Bible filled with laws and rules and regulations and in Leviticus 23, God commands his people to be a celebrating people. Even if sometimes that celebration isn't like, yay, fun celebration, but more like, here, have all of like this great proportion of my worldly goods celebration, right? Or like, here, let's kill a couple of these animals because I'm just that sinful kind of celebration. But I think, I think Sukkot, I think the Feast of Shelters, the Festival of Booths, Celebration of Tabernacles is perhaps one of the most celebratory. It is described in more detail than any of the other feasts in the chapter, which I think is interesting. It takes up verses 33 through 44, right? So that's about a good chunk of the chapter. But here are a few highlights about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Shelters. It takes place five days after the Day of Atonement, which, if you recall, kind of took place really quickly after the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know if Steph hit that last week. So really, yet again, here we find that the celebration lifestyle that God's people are called to isn't really about their schedule, is it? Like, the Lord isn't like, you know, like, I was wondering if we could have a small group every other Tuesday for 45 minutes. The Lord was like, how about you take five, like a whole bunch of time off of work, work for five days, and then take eight days off of work? Okay, at the end of the harvest season when we're trying to get it all wrapped up, right? It takes place five days after the Day of Atonement. This week-long festival takes place at the end of the harvest. The first and eighth day of the festival are days of complete rest, right? So you could maybe do, be doing a little bit of work on the side, days two through seven, but days one and eight, chilling out in your booth. I have a picture of a booth in a second. This festival requires burn offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, liquid offerings, and this feast, in particular, simulates or recreates Israel's time of living in booths or tabernacles or tents 
in their wilderness journey. So I first, this is a picture of a modern day Sukkot booth. And so you'll see it's like a little, it's a little booth, it's a little tent. And you'll see the doorway uh, is covered in palm branches. We're gonna get back to that in a minute. It's very important. Uh, even as the Israelites are receiving these instructions in Leviticus 23, they are camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai. They are in tents. They're traveling through the wilderness of the promised land. They do that dwelling in tents. As they're led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the Lord says in verse 43, this festival will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Here's a picture of them in their shelters in the wilderness. It's a little old-timey, but you can see the center there is the tabernacle. And then the nation of Israel encamps around the tabernacle. The center is the pillar of fire. That's where the presence of God lives. And then the, at the outside are the tents. It, this is a festival that is all about the presence of God. His very tangible nearness in their wilderness journeys. Now, there are two curious things about the Feast of Booths. And the first is the branches. So you saw the branches on the door, right? Leviticus 23, verse 40 says, On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees, and willows that grow by the streams. So the first day, they're called to gather branches from trees that grow by streams. And speaking of water, speaking of streams and water, the second curious thing about this festival is how it evolves. Derek Tidball says that by the time of Jesus, an essential element of the celebration was bringing water from the Pool of Siloam through the water gate to the temple where it was poured out as a supplication to God. So this is a festival that is set to remind them of, their, of God's faithfulness. But what do branches and water have to do with remembering God's presence? Why are they good like mnemonic devices? That's the, like the word, right, that you have for like how I remember things. I had this book growing up that had like little illustrations of all the state capitals. And so I can remember that Little Rock is the capital of Arkansas because there was an ark sawing a little rock, right? So it was a little mnemonic device for you. These, these branches and, and, and the water have to do with the larger picture of the Bible. And so if we, I want to zoom out a little bit, and I want to see the whole story that the Feast of Booths is trying to tell and why it's worth celebrating. So let's, let's start here. I want to look at the whole Bible. Should only take about three hours. And it's a lot, I know, but really I actually want to just look in two places. I want to look in two places. I want to look at the very beginning of the Bible, and I want to look at the very, very end of the Bible. Because if you zoom out, you notice at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, you find branches and water. Let me tell you what I mean. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the very beginning of the Bible, uh, it says this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
a river flowed through the land of Eden, watering the garden and dividing it into four branches. Here we are at the very beginning of the Bible. When God creates the world in beauty, no pain, no problems, no punishments. In the beginning, when God dwelt with his people, man dwelt in the presence of God, unashamed, unafraid. Communion with God was perfect and fulfilling and endless. And then we fast forward to the end of the Bible, the very end in the book of Revelation, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, we see yet again man dwelling with God, unafraid, unashamed. Communion is perfect and deep and fulfilling, no pain, no problem, no punishments. And at the end of the Bible, you see a river and you see a tree. Revelation 22 says, the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. With a fresh crop each month, the the leaves are used for medicine to heal the nations. At the bookends of the Bible, you find a river and a tree. Symbols of an unhindered relationship with God. Symbols of life in the presence of God. Are you with me so far? Okay. So the question next is like, what comes between the bookends? What comes between the bookends? And the answer is nothing really good. It's mostly death and despair and disappointment. That's what's in between the bookends. In the garden, Adam and Eve go their own way. They sin. Sickness, sadness, suffering enter into the world. And God has to do a whole lot of work. And I mean just a whole lot of work over a very long time to move his people to that end of the Bible. And in between the beginning and the end is where we find ourselves in the story. Cast out of Eden, cut off from life, and stuck here in the dust. We are outside of the garden, and it is not good here. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It is why there is so much disappointment and despair. There's so much toil and meaninglessness. This is where we find ourselves, outside of the garden, cut off from life. You are dying. And so am I. The shape that the story takes in between the bookends is one where it very often seems like God is nowhere to be found out here in the wilderness. In the midst of the suffering and the evil that is around every corner and under every rock. The Bible's answer to the question, where is God in the midst of it all, in the midst of all the evil and suffering, is out here in the wilderness sometimes like this emoji. Except, except that between the bookends of the Bible, along the way, there are moments of hope, aren't there? There are these moments that make you think maybe, just maybe, paradise hasn't been lost forever. There are moments when the presence of God 
breaks into the dry and dusty wilderness, and we find ourselves in that wilderness confronted by the presence of God, and now all of a sudden we think, maybe, maybe it won't always be this hard. In fact, wilderness isn't all there is. Along the way, there are oases, aren't there? Along the way, there are moments and seasons when we do get to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. There are moments when the presence of God draws near and we find that the nearness of God is is our good. And that, that is exactly what the Feast of Booths is all about. The Feast of Booths is how we create little gardens, mini Edens in the wilderness. Isn't that why you would decorate it with branches from magnificent trees? There in the wilderness, building just a little mini garden. That's why you decorate them with branches that, of trees that grow by streams, because in Eden there were trees growing by streams. Each year at the Feast of Booths, what you are doing is digging a well of hope in the midst of despair. And that's why, as the Israelites practiced the Feast of Booths, they began to carry water into the temple court. Water from the Pool of Siloam, they would pour it out from the Lord. It was a down payment of hope for a time when water would flow from the temple forever. That's what Ezekiel promises. Ezekiel has this vision where water flows from the temple down the steps all the way through the city of Jerusalem into the, into the Red Sea and uh, and into the Dead Sea, excuse me, into the Dead Sea, and the water turns sweet. Derek Tidball says, another hope had become bound up with the quest for water. It came to symbolize the day of the Messiah when life-giving water would flow from the very heart of the temple. As prophesied by Ezekiel and Zechariah, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, their enemies would be defeated and the day of supreme peace and prosperity would arrive. Turn with me to John 7. We're having fun now, tell you what. The Jewish people, the Israelites, they leave the wilderness of Sinai and enter the promised land. But like in a deeper, truer sense, they never actually leave the wilderness, because even in the promised land, there is still death and despair and disappointment. They are still, like us, living in between the bookends. And so after millennia of dwelling in the wilderness, after centuries of building little booths decorated with branches from trees that grow near streams, after many years of pouring water in the temple in the hope that what the prophets saw would soon come to pass, a stonemason from a town called Nazareth, comes into the temple on the last day, on the last day of the Feast of Booths. And this is what happens. Look at John 7, 37. On the last day, the text says, at the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Sometimes the Bible is just beautifully written. 
And not like, let's put that on a Hobby Lobby pillow. Beautiful. But like in a like, wow, that's like actually good literature. Good. Rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus stands up at the end of the Feast of Booths. I mean, do you see what's happening? Do you see these connections? It's all like collapsing in on itself now, isn't it? At the beginning of the Bible, we find a river and a tree. At the end of the Bible, we find a river and a tree. And in between these rivers and trees is the dry wilderness of despair and disappointment and death. But that's not the whole story. In the midst of the wilderness, we build little shelters. In the midst of the wilderness, we find, to our surprise, the presence of God. And so Hagar, a slave, a pawn in her master's hands, finds the presence as she runs for her life. And she, a slave woman, names God El Roy, the God who sees. Jacob, who manipulated his way through life and deceived his way through every relationship, found the presence in the looming despair of his death late at night by a river. He wrestled with the presence and received a new name, Israel, he who strives with God and wins. Moses, a stuttering murderer, finds the presence on the far side of the desert in a bush that burned but was not consumed and even weirder, spoke to him and said, I am who I am. Tamar, a prostitute, found the presence when she let some spies through her window and laid a red cord outside of it. Ruth, a foreigner, found the presence on the threshing floor in the face of a man named Boaz who would become her kinsman redeemer. David, a king, found the presence as he waited for his throne and ran for his life from his enemies. Elijah, with a warrant for his arrest, found the presence not in the wind or in the fire, but in a still, small voice. Ezekiel encountered the presence while living in exile and a refugee in Babylon, and Jesus of Nazareth found the presence in the wilderness and on the mountaintop. And he cried out when the presence became absence and became presence again, and Jesus' voice shouting through the temple echoes across time to you and I today in this place, in this moment, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And here we are in between the bookends. in the midst of despair and decay and death in the wilderness. Our bodies are aging, our minds are failing, our pregnancies begin and end long before they should, if they ever start at all. Our sleep is disturbed by anxiety or totally chased away by depression. Our nearest and dearest relationships are marred with strife. 
We live in a world we can barely recognize. Leaders cannot be trusted. Institutions are broken. Children may not be safe at school. Children may not be safe in the presence of law enforcement. Children may not be safe at the border. Children may not be safe in the womb. This is the wilderness. Death abounds, and despair rides with it. And in the midst of the wilderness, we who call Jesus Lord do something that defies all logic. With praise and prayer, with quiet faithfulness and steady obedience, we build for ourselves shelters in the wilderness. Every song we sing is a branch gathered. Every prayer is a water offering poured out. And so in the midst of doubt and despair, we sing. In the midst of suffering and sadness, we pray. We seek after the God who is there, who makes himself present to us in the midst of life's most difficult circumstances. Sometimes, sometimes, life is so hard. The challenge is so severe. The fear so overwhelming that we can't not find the words to pray. And the songs hit our ears like a cruel joke. And in those moments, it's the prayers of others that gather the branches over us, which shade us in the cruel heat of trial and temptation. As we pray and sing, as others pray for us, as we rise early in the morning to read the scriptures or to worship, as we listen to a passage of scripture while we shower, as we recite aloud a passage of scripture we've taken to memory, as we reach out in prayer while on our drive to work or in between classes, as we do these things, we build for ourselves booths and shelters in the wilderness. We find the presence. We find God who makes himself present to us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of the wilderness, we encounter the presence of God. Psalm 139 says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me, and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. This is what we celebrate. No matter where we are, no matter what trials come, in summer, in winter, in springtime or harvest, 
the presence of God goes with us, before us, and behind us. The presence of God can be found in the wilderness. That is what we celebrate. No matter how difficult the circumstance, we can construct for ourselves shelters in the wilderness. So how do we celebrate? We celebrate with a practice so simple that you are tired of me talking to you about it. We celebrate with gratitude. When we practice gratitude, we throw many celebrations of the presence of God. We recognize his presence in the wilderness and we build for ourselves booths of rest and refreshment. Gratitude. The Bible keeps talking about gratitude as if God knew when he was writing the scriptures that gratitude can change the very function of our brain chemistry. As if gratitude was vitally essential to the practicing the way of Jesus. Um, not this past week, but the week before, Steph was driving and um, is very pregnant. And um, I'm on the phone with her and she says, and all of a sudden she's going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I'm like, what? what? I just hit somebody's mailbox. Now we have this really nice Honda Odyssey. It's very fancy. It's got a camera in the mirror. It's got a camera in the mirror. Okay. Uh, and so that's happening. And, and, and we already knew that you know, we needed to get some new tires for my flex before the winter, and now we're thinking about this. And uh, there was some other damage to the car, by the way. The estimate was $1,800. So thank you, Jesus, for insurance. And, um, and by the way, don't, don't forget that this is all on the tales of me preaching a sermon on provision, okay? So just remember, I'm out here too, okay? So that happens on Tuesday. That happens on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I drive out to my barber, and I'm in the, I get my, my, hair, my hair done. I'm looking fresh, and I get in my car, and the car won't turn over. Um, and at that point, you kind of just laugh, right? Because um, it's either hysterical laughter or hysterical tears, right? So um, again, five out of five would recommend having a roadside assistance as a part of your insurance. And uh, so they, they came to our rescue. We take it up to our guy up here in Champion, And um, I, I reached out to a couple guys that said, hey, would you just pray for us? This kind of feels a little bit like spiritual warfare. It just feels annoying, da-da-da-da-da. And Preston texts me on the side, and he goes, you're going to hate me for asking this. He said, what are three things that you're grateful for? <laughs> now, now, turnabout's fair play because I think I once asked Preston for like 10 things that he was grateful for. So, um, so that's fair. And uh, I think I was actually able to come up with about five. And as I'm practicing the gratitude in the midst of one car that at this point on Wednesday afternoon, we had no idea how much it was gonna cost us other than probably, I don't know, everything that we've owned. Um, and then, you know, my car and these kinds of things. And, um, and, but as I'm, as, I'm build, as I'm practicing gratitude, I find myself kind of lifted up and away from the thing, right? And all of a sudden, I'm healthy, Steph's healthy, 
it's the Lord's money. If this is how he wants to spend it, that's fine. Um, and here we go. And, and, and in that moment, as I'm sitting in my car waiting for the tow guy to come, I feel sheltered in the midst of the wilderness. We practice gratitude. In fact, we're going to practice gratitude right now. You're going to hate me. I would like you to stand up if you can. And I would like you to find your way to a group of three or four people. Hear me. Hear what I'm about to say. I'm sorry, introverts. <laughs> you need to find your way to a group of three or four people that's like not the group that you usually hang out with here. Do you know what I'm saying? So I want you to go get in your group of three and four, and then I will give you your instructions. So go mingle. I, I'm talking, I want to see this section over here. I want this section over. I want mingling. And I want you to get in that group, and I want you to introduce yourself. Is that what you have found? Are you? Nope, this group does not count. You two hang out together all the time. Okay, fine. Are we, are we in our groups? And have you introduced yourselves? Be sure to introduce yourselves. And what I would like you to do... <clears throat> is once you've introduced yourself, I'd like you each to share something that you're grateful for from the last week. Something that you're grateful for for the last week. On your market set, go.
Has everybody shared? <laughs> okay. What I'd like you to do is look around the room and notice the level of smiling. When you were, when you were sharing, did you notice like how your, your face started to smile when you were sharing gratitude? Something your brain does. Isn't that wild? Well, come back and you can find your way. If everybody's done, you can find your way to your seat again. So the question that is so pertinent is, where is God in the midst of it all? And the invitation of the Feast of Booths is to be people who find ways to celebrate the presence of God even in the midst of his absence. And as we do that, as we celebrate the presence of God in our midst, as we practice gratitude, we find ourselves drinking deeply of who Jesus is, right? And he doesn't give us these deep answers to why the, way the world works the way it does, or at least there is no answer to the question of God and suffering that will forever settle it. So what Jesus does is he doesn't give us an answer, he gives us a person, he says, streams of living water will flow. And actually, John adds that the, the streams are the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. And so we celebrate with gratitude and we build up shelters for ourselves in the midst of the wilderness. This morning, we get to go to the Lord's table together. And at Regen, this is something we do on the regular. <laughs> 